you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10. Continuing our series. Remember, Advent means coming, so we're doing a series called When He Come, Why He Came. And we're looking at a handful of times in the Gospels in which Jesus explicitly tells us why his first Advent came to be and why his second Advent will come to be. So this morning we're going to look in Mark chapter 10. And again, just as we've seen each week, you're going to see that the last line, the last verse is really the highlight verse that we're driving home in which Jesus is going to clarify for us his mission. Mark chapter 10 will begin in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want for me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever should be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom many. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that today you would let us clear our eyes of the arrogance, pride, and hubris that comes so naturally, that we might see clearly, perhaps for the very first time, the true pathway to true greatness. That this morning we wouldn't have in our minds the the starry gaze to look upon that everyone would think that we are great, but instead, oh Lord, we would follow Jesus to his cross, humble ourselves in the dirt that they might know that Jesus is great. I pray, Lord, that you would rescue us from trivial pursuits, things that mean nothing, chasing after the wind. And that, Lord, instead, you would redefine and redirect and recalibrate our lives so that, Lord, we are pursuing after eternity that which actually matters now and matters forever. Lord, I pray for my people. Oh, Lord, in an era of outlandish self-promotion that they would become people of self-denial. We ask these things in the name of the Jesus who came to save us and serve us. Amen. You may be seated. Humanity and hubris go hand in hand. And if you're not familiar with the word hubris, hubris is where pride meets entitlement. It's the belief that you don't have to play by the rules that everyone else plays by because you deserve that right. It's to believe that the consequences that generally apply don't apply to you because you are in some way above them. It's arrogance that's acted upon. It's pride that's boldly applied to a person's life. 
there's that actually an old ancient myth, an ancient Greek myth that can kind of help us to understand what hubris is. The myth goes that there was a famous inventor by the name of Didalus. And Didalus was capable of ingenuity that was unknown at that time in the foreign world. And so the king had hired Didalus to construct the labyrinth, which was a prison that was, at, it was a maze that functioned as a prison. It locked people in there and they couldn't get out of it. Over time, as he had created the labyrinth, the king came to distrust Didalus. And he takes Didalus and his son Icarus and he actually throws them into the labyrinth themselves. And Didalus knows that it's hopeless that they can escape unless somehow they could do what was unhuman, superhuman, that they could fly. Now you remember, this is before the days of Delta and Southwest, okay? No one had ever fly. No man or woman had ever been airborne before. And so Didalus, being the man of great ingenuity that he was, fashioned a set of wings out of thread, feathers, and beeswax so that his son, who was much younger and more able than him, would be able to fly out of the labor, to be able to escape. But he gave his son very strict instructions about the usage of the wings. He told his son that if you go down too close to the sea, that the mist of the sea will come up and saturate the wings and you won't be able to get the lift that's necessary and you will crash into the sea. But if you go too high, if you fly too near to the sun, then the heat of the sun will melt the wax of the wings and the wings will dissolve around you. Well, Icarus, being a young man, does what young men do, doesn't he? He flies out of the labyrinth and he is astounded. Here he is doing that which is superhuman. He is able to fly and to soar, to see views and heights. He feels unconquerable and invincible. So he flies and he goes and he goes higher and he, he's fine. And he's astounded at what he's able to do and so he goes higher still. And then he begins to believe that, that he must test the limits of what his wings are capable of. That he must see the highest heights. His dad's voice is pinging around in his head. He knows what his dad has said, but it just seems like it's going so well. And so he goes higher and higher still and higher yet again. But then he discovers that the wax begins to drip from the wings. And slowly the feathers and the beeswax and the threads all comes up, come apart and the wings dissolve. And Icarus crashes into the sea and he drowns. Because he believed that he was above the wisdom that he had received. And this, this is hubris. This is hubris. This hubris is the infection that has spread throughout all of humankind. It was hubris that led Adam and Eve to believe that they deserve to be on equal footing with the Lord. To know all that he knows. To be able to do all that he do, does. And that's why they ate of the fruit. It was hubris that led those ancients so long ago to build the Tower of Babel. Because they believed that by their own ingenuity and their own might, they ought to be able to ascend to the throne room of God. And it is by hubris that you and I believe that we can flourish and thrive outside of the design of God and apart from abiding ourselves fully in Christ. And so this teaching of Jesus that Mark includes here in his gospel is meant to show us both the faultiness of the infection of hubris and at the same time its antidote that found in the person of Christ. And what I want us to see here is how Jesus reshapes the worldview that so many of us here in the western world have come to adopt. 
First, I want you to see that greatness doesn't come through self-promotion. Greatness doesn't come through self-promotion. We live in an era of outlandish self-promotion, don't we? Outlandish self-promotion. Everybody is not just a person. You're not a person. Your responsibility is to become a brand, right? We see this especially in sports and athletics. Those of us in the South, we love our sports, right? And so this becomes really obvious. I have always been a huge Deion Sanders fan, okay? I actually wore number 21 when I played high school ball because I played a lot like Deion. Now, uh, <laughs> right? It's not that funny. Um, <laughs> but I, I, was a, I was a defensive back. I was a cornerback. And, man, Deion was just so sweet. Y'all remember how he used to return punts and he held the ball out in front of him because he was so much. It was, it was amazing. It was off the chain, right? But Dion has come to really embody the kind of self-promotion that we're talking about here, hasn't he? Because he's not just Dion, he's prime time, right? And now he's not just prime time, he's coach prime, right? If you see, in fact, if you see Dion Sanders at one of Colorado's press conferences, he's hardly ever wearing Colorado gear, is he? His hat will say prime, his shirt will say prime. It may be in Colorado colors, but he seems far more interested in promoting his own brand than even his school or his team, right? And it doesn't even stand out to us because it's normal. This is mainstream behavior. Did you know that right now, if you went home, if you go home and you look up how to self-brand, to develop a personal brand and self-promote, you will find innumerable articles and videos ready to go by extremely highly esteemed sources. Because this is the way we get ahead. Now, why is it that all of us are so obsessed with self-promotion? Why is it that Dion is filled with self-promotion? Why is it that we're prompt? Because we want greatness. Because we want greatness. Dion wants greatness associated with his name. And the reason that you use your social media to self-promote is because you want greatness associated with your motherhood. You want greatness associated with your position in the company or the success of your family or the success of your business. You, you want greatness associated, effectiveness, successfulness. Because greatness seems to beget greatness, right? So if I can impress you, then that only is going to increase my opportunities, right? Well, Mark is writing as a warning so that we can see that it doesn't lead to what we think it leads to. That self-promotion doesn't bring about what we hope that it's ultimately going to bring about. It may bring about temporary gains, but it's to our long-term harm. That what Mark is pointing out through Jesus is that hubris deceives. That hubris deceives. So James and John are referred to in Mark chapter 3. I love this. Okay, I think we have this image of John. Throughout the, uh, the, uh, the, John's writings, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves, and he's got his head rested on the bosom of the Lord. And I think that we think that, jo that John is some effeminate guy that's not very tough, not, that he's kind of a docile creature. In Mark chapter 3, do you know what Jesus calls James and John? The sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. And in Mark chapter 10, they are living up to their name. They are young men. They are brash men. They are brazen men. They are audacious men. They are bold men. And they are here living up to the name. And so they come to Jesus like he is a genie in a lamp. And they say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. 
We want you to give to us whatever we want. And Jesus responds gently. Perhaps they're coming by faith. And Jesus says, well, what is it that you want? They said, Jesus, what we want is we want for you to give us the seats of highest honor and highest glory in your kingdom. That there was the king, right, seated upon a throne. And in every kingdom there was his top advisor, his, his VP, his, his CFO sitting there at his right hand. And there was his other vice president, perhaps his, his VP of communication sitting there at his left hand. And they were the positions of highest honor in the kingdom. And so James and John are saying, we want to be VP to your CEO, Jesus. Now, what's interesting is I think that if you turn back one chapter to chapter 9, what you see is that the transfiguration has just taken place. You remember the transfiguration? That Jesus, before three of his disciples, and who were those three? Peter, James, and John. Before three of his disciples, Jesus is transfigured before them so that they can actually begin to glimpse his true glory, the fullness of who he actually is, which seems to embolden them. Remember, Elijah comes down, Moses comes down, the Lord, the Father in heaven says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Like You have this incredible declaration. And it seems like James and John come from this experience emboldened, but also very shrewd. That they seem to recognize that there's only two seats of highest honor available with the king. And there are three obvious candidates, right? There's three obvious candidates. Now, because we have Peter, James, and John that Jesus has now pulled aside to witness his glory transfigured before them. And so what they want to do here is they want to get the inside track. Matthew actually tells us that they they get their mama to do it, right? (laughs) They, They get their mama to come in and try to bring any leverage. Perhaps they were relatives of Jesus, some believe, to come in and leverage this over Jesus. And what I want you to see, y'all, is this is what hubris is. Hubris is willing to ask for what it doesn't deserve because it believes that it deserves it. Hubris seeks the reward that it hasn't earned Though it believes that it's rightfully theirs. And what it reveals in the hearts of James and John is that they are painfully deceived. They are painfully deceived. That is, what what it begins to reveal is that in the hearts of James and John, they still have the traditional view of the Messiah. That they believe that now having glimpsed Jesus in his glory, that taking over Rome is going to be no problem at all. This man literally called heaven down to declare Elijah and Moses has signed off on him. And so now they're convinced that he is going to overthrow the Caesar, reestablish the earthly messianic kingdom. And they want to be there when Jesus is receiving all of the cries of glory. They want to be there seated at his right and his left so that they can share in the spotlight. So that they can share in the glory. Now this is in spite of the fact that Jesus has just prior to this experience told them three different times, I'm headed to the cross. I'm headed to be crucified. I must suffer and then be glorified. But they were so starry-eyed for greatness in this world that they could not see that the cross was standing in their way. And you see, this is why many of the followers of Jesus or the would-be followers of Jesus would fall away from him. They believed that by coming into relationship with the Messiah, that their lives would be more profitable, that their lives would be simpler, and that their lives would be better. But what they very often found is that first came suffering and then comes glory. And glory probably isn't coming in this lifetime. 
And so they would come to Jesus expecting an easier life. And they would come to Jesus expecting a more profitable life. Only for Jesus to say, count the cost, count the cost, count the cost. And they would turn away sad because they had been deceived. See, hubris deceives and then hubris disappoints. That's what hubris does. It deceives and then it disappoints. Jesus begins to recognize that his disciples need to be recalibrated. He recognizes that his disciples need to have their expectations reset. That they have an assumed path of discipleship, but that there is a noticeable gap between their assumed path of discipleship and the actual path of discipleship. Their assumed path of discipleship is that they are going to sit on the throne immediately, reign with Jesus, life is going to be good. They're going to be drinking the sweet wine of the palace and enjoying all the parties thereafter. The actual path of discipleship is going to go and it's going to be the bitter wine of the cross. And it's going to entail suffering and pain. It's going to be sadness and long nights and martyrdom. And Jesus recognizes this gap in the understanding of the discipleship of his disciples. And he seeks to sober them up. And so he begins to talk about the cup, doesn't he? He says, are you able to drink of the cup that I drink? Now, this is the same cup that he talks about in Gethsemane. You remember that prayer in Gethsemane where Jesus prays great, with great drops of blood because he's under such distress? And what does he pray? Father, if there is any way that this cup might pass from me. What's he talking about there? The prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, talked about the wrath of God in the context of a cup. That the wrath of God that was owed for your sin and my sin, that was owed to us for all of our pride, all of our arrogance, all of our hubris, all of our disobedience, that the Lord had not dumped that out over the world because the world would have been incinerated on the spot. Instead, the wrath of the Lord had been stored up in a cup, generation after generation after generation, as person after person, people after people, nation after nation would reject the Lord and rebel against the Lord. His wrath had been stowed up, past wrath, present wrath, future wrath, stored up in the cup but what would happen to the wrath on the cross the cup would be flipped upside down emptied upon his own son emptied upon Christ that the wrath and the suffering owed for every sinner that had ever lived for you and for me would be poured out upon the person of Christ and Jesus looks at them and he says do you not see that the cup is coming that the cup will be emptied can you drink of this cup and he talks about the baptism he says or to be baptized baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. What's he talking about? He's not so much talking about the baptism of John. They had experienced the baptism of John. They probably thought, no big deal, been baptized, not worried about being baptized. But Jesus is using the word to allude to the idea of the flood. Do you remember the flood? God's judgment had come against his people. God's judgment had come against the world. He had said that it would have been better had mankind never been made because the scar of sin had so permeated the creation and everybody was doing right with what was in their own eyes. And so the flood of the Lord's wrath rained down upon the earth. Man was powerless to stop it. Suffering and death ensued. And after the carnage had parted, a rainbow is hung in the sky. To show that God is going to prepare another way. That he will not fully destroy the world. Instead he will fully redeem the world. Because he will take the flood that was owed to you and to me. And he will instead pour it upon the seed of Abraham. And who is the seed of Abraham? Upon whom the unadulterated flood of God's wrath will be poured. It is upon Jesus. It's the cross. So he looks to his 
audacious disciples, the sons of thunder. He says, you want greatness? How can you not see the cross? How can you not see the cross? You have been blinded by your hubris, believing that it's what you deserve. But in fact, you first must walk through the valley of the shadow of death before you will experience the glory of my resurrection. First comes suffering, then comes glory. See, it's not an uncommon experience for many would-be or new followers of Jesus to become disappointed with their lives when they begin to follow Jesus. If your expectation is in the here and now comes glory. If your expectation is in the here and now comes greatness. If your expectation is that in the here and now comes reward. If in the here and now life gets easier. If in the here and now life gets simpler. And you begin to follow after Jesus. You're following after a Savior who's walking toward a cross. And life gets harder. And life doesn't go your way. And you begin to engage in spiritual warfare for the first time. You can come away and think, man, life was better before I even had to do this. It reminds me of the conversation that I had with my oldest at the dinner table one night. You get that moment that every, every Christian dad dreams of when she says, Daddy, I think I want to be baptized. And I want to baptize my daughter, right? I want to baptize my daughter. But as a youth pastor, I just saw so many Children, so many teenagers come and go and say they want to be baptized and say they want to follow after Jesus and then fall away, fall away, completely inconsequential to anything in their lives. And, and so I'd prayed and I'd prepared for that moment. And I remember the conversation that I had. And I'll be honest with you, I felt like maybe I even overdid it. And I just said, sweetheart, that's what I want for you. And she knows all the answers. She knows who Jesus is and she knows what Jesus has done. She knows what the cross is about. She knows about her sin. But I told her what Jesus says to all those who would follow him in the Gospels. Would you first go and count the costs? Would you first go and count the costs? Because what this means is that you are saying today that you are willing to miss out on the parties that you want to participate in as a teenager. And what you are saying today is that you are willing to be mocked and made fun of for the rest of your life if that's what should come. And what you're saying today is that for the rest of your life, you're not going to be able to pursue your own dreams and your own ambitions and your own heart. You're going to have to go where Jesus says go and do what Jesus says do and be who Jesus says be. And that may even mean that one day you have to leave me and your mom and go and live in a place where you don't know anybody. So right now, before you say that you want to be baptized, I need to know that you've counted the cost. And honestly, it did sober her up. And she said, Daddy, I need to think about that for a little while. Brothers and sisters, it would do well for all of us. It would do well for all of us to stop for just a second and to count the cost. And to recognize that the cross comes before the resurrection. The suffering comes before the glory. The costs come before the reward. And if you don't see it with sober eyes, if the hubris blinds you, that makes you believe that you don't deserve suffering and that you don't deserve hardship and you don't deserve disappointment, then disappointment is surely what you will find. Because wherever there is a gap between your assumed path of discipleship and the real path of discipleship, disappointment is sure to ensue. You see, hubris doesn't just deceive and disappoint, hubris divides. Hubris divides. It has from the beginning. 
When Adam and Eve, by their own hubris, go and say, yes, we will eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We want to be on equal footing with the Lord. What happened? Immediately, there was a fracture between mankind and its uninhibited, previously uninhibited relationship with Almighty God. But it wasn't just a fracture between mankind and, and their God. It was a fracture between one another, wasn't it? You remember what the curse of Genesis 3 says? It says that now brother is going to rise up against brother. We saw this with Cain and Abel. It says that now a, a woman is going to seek to usurp uh, her husband and to, uh, to rise up against her husband. And it says that a, a husband is going to seek to oppress his wife. That there's going to be divisions between people as a result. And that's what we see here with James and John, isn't it? It says in verse 41, and when the ten heard it, these are the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, by all indications, they aren't angry because James and John have sinned against Jesus. They are angry because they believe that James and John have sinned against them. They are angry because they want to be at the right hand and they want to be at the left hand. They are angry because they believe that James and John are trying to get the inside track that would stand in the way as an obstacle to their own ambitions. And what we're be what's being revealed here by Jesus is the source of division that will so permeate his people across the generations. Do you want to know what the greatest threat to Iron City Baptist Church is? It's my ego and it's your ego. It's the ego of our elders. It's the ego of our, of our deacons. It's the egos of our people. Do you want to know what the greatest threat to your marriage is? It's your ego and your wife's ego. Do you want to know what the greatest threat to your friendships are? It's your ego and your friend's ego. See, wherever there are two egos, they collide. Wherever two egos collide, the people will ultimately divide. It's a universal principle. And the interesting thing is, is that the bigger your ego is, the more easily you are offended. So if you're a person that's always offended and finds yourselves easily offended and everybody seems to step on you and hit you the wrong way, it's likely because you have a really, really, really high view of yourself. And so what happens? Well, I didn't get the recognition that I deserve. People never notice, never notice what I do. Or, or perhaps it's on a theological issue and, or, or, or an issue of the conscience, an issue where Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians can disagree and have disagreed for generations, but you are so filled with hubris that you believe that your way must be the right way, and you will actually break fellowship with people over small minutia, tertiary doctrine, issues of the conscience, because you are convinced in your own ego, that you have to be right, and they have to be wrong. And if they will not come over to your side, you cannot be friends. Well, hubris destroys. It destroys and divides every single thing that it touches. And so driving home for us, Jesus, time and again, is if you are seeking greatness through self-promotion, if you are seeking greatness by your own pride, if you are seeking greatness your own way, you will not find it. There is an alternative pathway. That greatness instead comes through self-denial. Earlier, I took a shot at an FSU guy, okay? And I'm aware of the situation. So as an Alabama guy, you might think there's some bias, okay? So let me, let me, let me clear the air here a little bit. In an era of outlandish self-promotion, I actually think Jordan Travis stands out as a remarkable example 
I don't know if you guys are familiar with Jordan Travis's story. Jordan Travis is the current quarterback or the recent quarterback of Florida State. He was recruited to Florida State. He wasn't the most highly touted recruit, but he was a scholarship quarterback at Florida State University, which tells you he was a doggone good football player, right? After two years, things had not gone very well for him, and he believed that perhaps he had reached his ceiling. And so he actually does something that I think is, I don't know if I've ever heard of before. He goes to his coach, so the story goes, and he tells the coach, Coach, I'm willing to give up my scholarship because I know how valuable these are, and I feel like I'm just a drain on this one. And so if it's better for the team, I'll transfer. Or if it's better for the team, I'll give up my scholarship so that someone else can have it, and I'll just remain on the team as an unscholarshiped player. And the coach said, no, no, we, Jordan, we, we really do see potential in you. We think you're still growing into your role. We think that the best is yet to come, and they let him keep his scholarship. Now, of course, we know that what happened last year is Jordan Travis led Florida State to an undefeated season and a Heisman, Heisman Trophy run, right? Only the end in tragedy. But, you know, I've always believed that it's in tragedy that you really begin to know who a person is. You know what happened when Jordan Travis broke his leg? It's, it's famous, right? Like Alabama ends up getting into the playoff. Florida State doesn't, even though they've had an undefeated season. But Jordan Travis's statement really stood out to me. He said, you know, I wish I would have broken my leg earlier in the year so that everybody else could see what a great team this is and that this really isn't about me. Boy, that stands out in an era of self-promotion, doesn't it? And if only for a second... If only for a second, our eyes are cleared up just a little bit to say, that is greatness. That is greatness. Not Coach Prime. That. Give me that, man. That's the guy I want in my church. That's the guy I want on my team. That's the guy I want my son to be. And what Jesus is doing with his disciples here is lifting up their gaze to a higher horizon beyond the world of of self-promotion to say there is a more beautiful glory, a more beautiful greatness that is available to you. That the path to greatness is not hubris. Rather, it is the antidote, humility. You see, humility redirects leadership. Humility redirects leadership. Jesus says something that's supposed to be shocking to them. Shocking. Verse 42, Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, I want you to think about rulers of the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? They're the godless, right? Now, who are the rulers? They're the politicians, You see this? Jesus is looking at his disciples, all of them angry because they are in competition for one another so that they can have the seats of greatest power and greatest influence to presumably be able to rule over all the people, to have all the prominence and all the influence. And you know what Jesus looks at them and says? He says, you are acting like godless politicians. And it will not be so in my kingdom. That my church and my discipleship community will not be defined by the politics of natural man. My people will be united behind a new and fresh vision of glory that will enable them to now come together. See, wherever there is hubris, people divide. But wherever there is humility, it brings people together, doesn't it? 
I want you to think about this. I often point this out to marriage in marriage counseling, especially in, in premarital counseling. I'll go to the Song of Songs. I think you see this really, really vividly. That over and again, what you have in marriage is you have two people, and both of them want all their needs met. And both of them want everything that they want. And they want to have, and, and, and they want to make sure they're not getting left out in the partnership. And they want to make sure that, that they're not being neglected in the marriage. And so the whole time they're wondering, well, why doesn't he notice me more? Why doesn't he talk to me more? Why doesn't she come to me more? Why doesn't she celebrate me when I come home? And the time and again, over and over in the marriage, they're thinking, me, 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 me. And what happens when both people are focused on themselves? Inevitably, neither person ends up getting what they want. Neither person ends up getting what they want. Because what happens is the more that you focus on yourself, the further apart from one another you become. And the further apart from one another you become, the angrier with one another that you get. And the more you begin to resent them, and the more contempt begins to build in your spirit. But when we start taking Jesus' approach, he says, not so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be what? Servant. In other words, the ones that want to be great, the, the way my kingdom is going to be led is not by rulers from on high, but servants from the chair. The ones who are stacking chairs in the sanctuary, the ones that are visiting the, the widows, the ones that are, are cleaning up when no one else wants to clean up, the ones that are serving in the nursery and taking care of the children, the one who are coming in day in, day after is thinking, how can I count someone else more significant than myself? Oh, you let that infect a marriage, you turn that loose in a marriage and it transforms the culture of the house. When it goes away from what am I getting, what do I want, what do I need to, what does she need, what does she want, what would make her happy, what would lift her up, all of a sudden he's thinking about her, she's thinking about him and guess what happens? Both people get their needs met. By the other person. By the other And Jesus says what? Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And in the glory is in a functioning church and in a functioning marriage and in a functioning friendship. When you have two Christians living as servants, denying themselves, counting one another as more significant than themselves, is in that scenario everybody gets to receive and everybody gets to give. It's a more joyful relationship. See, Jesus is here redirecting the pursuit of leadership among his people. He's redirecting the pursuit of our relationships with people. People aren't stepping stones, and people aren't a means to the end. People are the end. That in the world, in the natural world, it is all about me seeking my honor and my glory. But what does Paul say when he hears these teachings of Jesus? I have it there at the bottom of the screen. Love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor. Be zealous. Make it a competition among you to go out with your husband, with your wife, with your friend, in your church to try not to seek your own glory, but to bring glory and honor to the brothers and sisters around you. And guess what? Now you're the kind of person people want to hang around. Because you give life rather than take life away. It's almost like Jesus knows what he's talking about. It's almost like Jesus knows what he's talking about. Because he's redirecting leadership and he's redefining greatness. This is what humility does. It In our culture, self-promotion is the currency. Self-promotion is the currency. Why? Self-promotion enables me to make more money and gain more influence. And how do we define greatness in our culture? 
most money, most influence. So if I can have the most money and the most influence, I can have greatness. And so that's why I self-promote, because it's an opportunity to be able to do those things, right? Jesus is presenting us here in Mark chapter 10 with an alternative economy. An alternative economy where there is a different current, where, where the currency becomes humility and servanthood, not self-promotion. Where my goal now is to outdo my brother in showing him honor, to make sure that others think more highly of him than they think of me. And as a result, as a result, now those that were historical positions of dishonor become the positions of greatest honor in his, commu- in his community of disciples. He says this point blank. He says, Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Whoever would be great among you must be servant of all. A servant in this idea, in this picture, is the idea of a table waiter, right? How many of y'all grew up with that being your aspiration? That's not the aspiration of our society, is it? Positions of service are seen as positions of dishonor here. And then he goes even a step further. He's talking about the slave. He says, you should all be aiming to be slave. Who's a slave? They are one that are literally the property of their masters. They live according to the whims of their masters and the will of their master. And he says, and this, this is greatness in my kingdom. This is greatness. That's who's going to be at my right hand. That's going to be who at my left hand. The irony of the question that James and John ask is the person that's going to be at the right and at the left would never ask the question. No, Jesus says, you want to be, have high esteem? Serve the widows. You want to be of high influence in my kingdom? Wait the tables. Live as one wholly, wholly surrendered to the will of the Father, like a servant is to the tables, like a, like a slave is to his master. You see, Christians, we pursue greatness with a towel tied around our, ne- our waists. Because this is who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus did. And that's who we're following. And I bet if I were to ask you who comes into your mind when you think about the greatest man or the greatest woman that you've ever met, I bet it's not a self-promoter. Even though we're self-promoting, even though we think that's the, that's the means to the greatness that we're pursuing, if we were honest with ourselves, the people that we think are the greatest are probably the ones that nobody else has even heard of. See, when I think of greatness, you know what I think of? I think of Ralph Vaughn sitting on a lawnmower, mowing the church lawn. I think of, of Joyce Vaughn going to Africa at 80 years old and making sure that every little African orphan knew that they mattered. They were somebody. I think about Pete Brooks well into his 60s and 70s driving the teenagers to camp and sleeping on a cot so that some of them would hear about Jesus. I think about Bobby Wilkins picking up an irritating junior high boy just so he could spend time with him and point him to Jesus. I think about Edwin Lester coming to me on my first Sunday here and walking up to me and telling me, brother, I've been praying for you before I even knew your name. You ask me what greatness is? Oh, when our eyes aren't clouded with ambition and our eyes aren't clouded with hubris, We can say that's greatness, can't we? That's greatness. What's your legacy going to be? What's your definition? What definition of 
greatness and ambition is driving your life? Is it hubris or is it humility? You see, what Jesus came to do was to redeem glory through humility. See, Jesus came because we were meant to be glorious and we weren't glorious. We were his image bearers, defaced by the, sin, by the sin of the world, by the curse of sin, and by our very own sin. Because we believed that we were somebody, and because we lived lives with great pride, arrogance, and hubris, and disobeyed the Lord, Jesus came that the glory in us and the glory in this creation might actually be redeemed and resuscitated and remade. And do you know how he did it? Jesus paid the price for my hubris and your hubris with his own humility. By being born and laying in the dirt. By being born and laid in a barn. By coming here and leaving the, the throne room of heaven to come and dwell among all of us. Who would resent him for it? There are two words that really stand out there in verse 45. The summary verse of our passage. The first verse is the word came. This is the word that we've really been studying throughout, why he came. Do you know what it means that Jesus came? You ever stop to think about that for a second? It meant that he already was, doesn't it? Doesn't isn't what that mean? You can't, you're created, you're born, right? If, if you weren't before, Jesus wasn't created, Jesus came. He was almighty God, now embodied. He is the eternal God, God of very gods. Before him, the cherubim and the seraphim are gathered around his throne, declaring worthy, 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 holy, 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 that he has the dignity of the almighty, receiving heaps of praise from the most angelic beings. And that brings us to the second word, to give. He came to give. Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. Jesus is being born in a stable, in a manger, in a tiny town of Bethlehem, being from the resented city of Nazareth, being a nobody of all the nobodies. It didn't happen to him. He volunteered for it. It was a gift from him. That the Son of God left the throne of heaven where it was worthy, 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 holy, holy, holy to come and to dwell among his people and to lay in the dirt where he would have no place for his head so that only they would say crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. All of us living with all of our hubris and all of our expectations and all the, the rights that we believe that we have and insisting on our rights are looking nothing like the Savior who emptied himself of every right and of all dignity to come here as a servant and as a slave of man. And there's a simple truth this morning that will drain your life of every single ounce of hubris. And this is that Jesus has served you. Jesus has served you. The Son of God. Let that ping around in your brain for just a second. Jesus has served you. You see, hubris will not survive the foot of the cross. And there's a simple truth that will propel you forward into a life of humble service, into a life of living according to the new economy established by Christ in the kingdom. And it's this, Jesus has served you. Jesus has served you. The question before 
every single one of us this Advent season is will we follow him? Will we follow his lead? Will we empty ourselves of our dignity, value, count one another as more significant than ourselves, and make it our ambition to pursue greatness Jesus' way? Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.